I'm Kim Grinnells of Dogman.com with Chris Fetter, Scott Eklund, Stanford versus Washington, 7.30 start time at Husky Stadium. Temperatures expected to probably begin in the low 60s, high 50s, and wind up somewhere in the mid-50s. So definitely going to be a little bit cooler than uh, what we saw a couple weeks ago versus Portland State, where everybody on the... Uh, one side pretty much got baked, but, uh, you know, be prepared. Also, just uh, FYI for those coming from the south end, I-90 is going to be closed. It starts closing on Friday morning, and it's going to be closed until I think it's late Sunday. But you're going to say, well, I'm not going to go across I-90. It's going to cause backups on 405, 520, as well as I-5 with Revive I-5 going on as well. So if you're coming from the south end, expect it to be kind of a mess. And if you're taking 520 over, expect huge delays on 520. Might be a good time to take the light rail uh, into the game and it drops you off right in front of Husky Stadium. Might be a little bit of a wait getting out of there, but traffic is going to be a mess for week two in a row. But uh, Washington versus Stanford and Stanford coming up here with one of the best quarterbacks in the country and Tanner McKee. But, you know, they've got their issues. But when you take a look at um, um, Stanford's offense again, Chris, you mentioned earlier this week, they're missing a big piece from that offense. Yes, they're missing E.J. Smith, the their running back, Emmett Smith's son. He is a huge part of their offense. Uh, he is basically the only – he was averaging over 100 yards a game in the two games they have played. It's a, it's a small sample size, to be sure. But, you know, when you are averaging t- over twice as much as the next guy – um, that's a huge part. And, and he's also, you know, he was also their leading receiver. He had more receptions in two games than any of their receivers or tight ends, which for Stanford, that might be considered a bit of an outlier because usually they're throwing a lot to their tight ends and their receivers, especially compared to the running backs. But yes, losing EJ Smith, um, it's a short-term loss. Apparently it sounds like he might be available for their, game this following weekend against Oregon. So we'll see, obviously, down the road how that works out. But in the short term, yes, a huge loss for Stanford. Not only a huge loss, you know, with E.J. Smith, but they lost their two top running backs to the portals. E.J. Smith was their third running back. And when you take a look at their depth chart after E.J. Smith, yeah, um, I'm expecting Stanford to air it out quite a bit because they got nothing. They got yeah, they, nothing. They lost um, Austin Jones to USC. And Nathaniel Pete to I believe Missouri. Yeah. So yeah, that that's yeah that's similar to Washington losing their running backs, but for completely different reasons, whether graduation or injury or other situations. Washington, in a lot of ways, they were trying to make, remake their running room deliberately. I mean, they were trying to find a different type of running back to uh, work yep. in this particular offense. But for Stanford, you know, David Shaw has been there, what, 12, 13, 14 years now, however long it's been. They have a very specific type of guy that they're looking for to work in that offense. And so all of these guys have been guys that they have wanted to use for very specific reasons and were recruited as such. And so to lose guys to the portal like that, especially Stanford, And you also have to remember, too, not too many guys are actually going to Stanford from the portal. You know, it's, you know, leaving is easy because of the academics. You can almost always get academically eligible somewhere else. But to become academically eligible for Stanford, that's a little bit that's going to be a lot harder move for a lot of these guys, even if they want to go there. Well, if you're going to be a school and you're going to lose your running backs and going to have a suspect running game, I think Stanford's got the quarterback who can overcome that in Tanner McKee, Scott. Highly recruited guy. What, he's 6'6", about 210, 220. Not a real thick guy. Uh, kind of a little bit of a lumbering runner. But Tanner McKee, uh, by many uh, NFL mock drafts, have him as a first-round draft pick. Yeah, Washington recruited him out of high school. And uh, they, they – he – took an official visit up here and, and was down to Washington and Stanford and Joe Stanford. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, and, and he's more mature. I mean, he, he went on a two year mission. Um, and he's a guy who, who, you know, can get it done. He can throw the ball. He's got an NFL 
arm. He's got and he can uh, put touch on the ball. He can make almost all the throws that I've seen. Um, so his his biggest drawback is is his running ability, and he can still be an escape guy and still use his legs a little bit here and there for a guy who's six six two hundred thirty pounds. But boy, I I just I mean, Washington has got to do something to get him off his spot and get him off his timing because if they can do that, he's gonna he'll he'll throw some balls up that you can uh, that you can make plays on. And as usual, Stanford has their stable of big wide receivers. I, I think the receivers they're starting are six two, six three. I think six two is the small guy. Yeah, and and they also have Yurasek, uh, you know, Ben Yurasek, the uh, tight end from last year who just killed Washington and and was their number one receiver last year. And this year he only has six receptions for 46 yards, but they get Michael Wilson back. He's a big time guy who was injured last year. John Humphreys is a guy who everybody wanted coming out of high school. I mean, he had offers from everywhere, including, you know, the top schools from the sec big 10 uh, Bryson Tremaine's another big guy. So they, yeah, Kim, you're right. They had a lot, they have a lot of, of big receivers that they're going to throw at you. And Washington's going to have to match up against that. Well, it was interesting, Chris, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to the podcast that I did with Jackson Moore, but he was talking about how Stanford completely changed their offense, that they wanted to run the same type of offense that Wake Forest was using with coach Dave Clawson. And, you know, they kind of went back there to get some tips and didn't get a whole lot from Dave Clawson, by the way, who was one of the top candidates for the Washington job. But um, they've changed everything, and they're they're kind of running this mesh type thing. Maybe if give a little bit of an explanation on what you're seeing that is, so if somebody is just listening to this, closing their eyes, they can get some kind of an idea of what that looks like. Sure, it's something that we brought up earlier in the week. It's called the slow mesh RPO, and essentially it is a run pass option, typical that we've seen in most shotgun type spread. Uh, formations that has become the the norm the last 20 years. Um, you know, ba- it's based on the point of contact between the quarterback and the running back or the whoever the other ball carrier could be, could even be maybe a receiver. Um, and it literally, instead of the quarterback literally making a split decision at that mesh point based on what the end is doing. So like if the end is closing on the quarterback, he'll give it to the running back. If he's closing on the running back, he'll keep it. That's been that's that that's basically RPO. That's zone zone option 101 uh, in terms of taking taking what the defense is going to give you. What the slow mesh does is it holds that mesh point between the quarterback and the ball carrier, and it just holds it there, and it allows the quarterback to be looking at the front of the defense the whole time. And so he waits until literally the defense commits to whatever they're going to do, or he finds gaps in the run game, the lanes that he can run through or the running back. And he holds it, holds it, holds it until finally the very last moment he can make a decision and then he'll give it. And so what that does is that creates complete indecision on the front. They don't know whether to keep rushing. They don't know whether to hold back and wait for the quarterback to make the decision. It just creates a lot of chaos there. And that chaos really benefits the quarterback and the running back because then they can go ahead and make the decision that's best for them and allows that chance, that play to be as successful as possible. It's a, it's a, an amazing offense. I totally recommend everyone looking for uh, wake forest tape on YouTube to look at it because that's, that's a lot of what you may see, uh, on Saturday with Stanford and kind of their version of the mesh. Cause as you said, Kim, they, he, Dave Clawson and those guys, they know they have something very unique and not a lot of teams have really even tried it. And so for Stanford to try it, they really had to create kind of their own version of it. Well, let's just say that the quarterback, you know, on a normal RPO, let's, you know, he's got the ball. He's going to put it in the belly of the running back and count 1001 and make a decision. It's almost like the quarterback is stopping in his tracks. The running back is stopping in his tracks. And it's 1,001, 1,002, 1,003 before that decision is made. So it almost seems like it's it almost like the offense, if the offensive backfield stops. I mean, it's like it stops and then starts again. It's kind of weird to look at it. Well, 
they they sometimes they hold where they're at and sometimes they actually move in the pocket in towards like the center and the guards to force the defensive line to make a decision as to what they're going to do, whether they're going to keep rushing, whether they're going to hold where they're at. It also allows the offensive line to kind of keep doing what they're doing and have some effectiveness that way. So clearly the the one way you can hopefully stop a little bit of a mesh is to really have a lot of upfield pressure inside, which really forces the mesh to either happen a lot faster or it could blow the play up altogether. That's really a huge part of it if, if you can get that kind of pressure because as it works, if it works the way it's supposed to, that mesh really holds and is allowed to stay together and kind of either, like I said, and you mentioned it, it could just literally stop in its tracks or it could briefly kind of move inside or move together until a decision has to be made and then that's when they go. And why do I get the feeling that there's just a lot of going to be a lot of opportunities for tackles in the backfield, especially for a guy like ZTF, if he can get through that offensive line with them stopping and starting like that, there's going to be some opportunities for those guys who can get in the backfield quickly. Oh, yeah, there, there yeah, is, definitely. But, but, you know, there is, but then there's also the, a lot of opportunities to bust coverage and to bust, you know, to, to offer up running lanes. Um, if you go to, let's say you get, you get, uh, played out too far outside, you know, then that creates a wide open lane between the tackle and guard, for instance, in that, uh, what would that be? C gap, B gap, whatever it would be, you know, there, there's, there's ways that the offense can use this to their, to a lot of effect. And like I said, if anybody watches Wake Forest's tape, they'll see that there are some massive running lanes. And also, you have to rely on the quarterback being a, a focal point of this thing. And that's where kind of the mesh for Stanford can maybe run into a little bit of a hiccup because Tanner McKee can be a guy that can use it and can run it. But is he going to be the same running threat that like Washington saw the first two weeks with like a, could you imagine a Colin Schlee from Kent state trying to run a slow mesh? He could be, really effective in something like this or Sashray from Portland yeah. state. I think he, you know, those types of dual threat guys, true dual threat guys could be really effective. Now where Tanner McKee can use this to his, to his benefit is the, is the pass option of this RPO. So they can hold, 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 hold. And what that also does is that allows the receivers to really try to get open. And this can really help trying to get downfield as well. So there's a lot of benefits to this holding in the slow mesh because everything around them, the quarterback is looking not just at where he can hand the running ball, the ball to the running back, but he's also looking, hey, where are the receivers? Where are the tight ends? Is any Has anybody come clear or found some space that I can get the ball to so I can pull the ball back and get the ball to them. So there's a lot of things here, but if I'm Washington, if I'm, you know, if I'm William Inge and if I'm Chuck Morrell, I'm looking at this going, when I look at the slow mesh, I'm almost just, I'm almost more concerned with when McKee pulls it, pulls it back and tries to throw either a quick slant or tries to throw something else off of it. Because his role as a passer in this particular attack is still so much more effective than him as a, as a runner. And Scott, when you take a look at what Stanford's done over the years, and I can't remember the name of the coach, and I, I, I forgot to look it up, but um, they lost their offensive line coach a while back, and their offensive line hasn't been the same since because they used to have a dominating. I mean, they were always the best offensive line in the conference, but that hasn't been the same in the past few years. And it's certainly not the same this year. You're, you're referring to Mike Bloomgren yeah. who went over to rice. Yeah. I mean, they haven't been the same for a long time. They, they don't recruit quite the, the big heavies that they were for a long time. I mean, basically if, if Stanford wanted a big time offensive lineman and he had the grades to, <clears throat> to get into Stanford, um, they had a very good chance of getting him. And I'm talking when they're recruiting against Alabama 
and Ohio State and schools that are constantly producing top end offensive linemen, they were <clears throat> they were able to go up head to head against those guys. And they just haven't been able to do that. And their play along the offensive and defensive lines over the last couple of years has really, you know, that seen that play out. I mean, they're they're still able to get some skill guys and linebackers and 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 here and there and and obviously good quarterbacks here and there but um you know they they uh, have really struggled with the offensive and defensive lines bringing big time guys in yeah and it's just like we used to go down to the off side of the field where Stanford was and go take a look at their linemen <laughs> and man it was huge I mean, they were huge, but uh, we're just not seeing that anymore. And they're not as experienced as they once were. So that's a big concern for Stanford as well. Will they be able to hold uh, hold the pass rush? But this has been a real busy week for Washington with the big win over Michigan State. Lots of talk with Michael Penix, uh, his name coming up in the Heisman Trophy uh, conversations. When we return, we'll talk about that and more. It's the guys from Dogman.com on Dogman Radio. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back. It's the guys from dogman.com. I'm Kim Grinnells along with Chris Fetters and Scott Eklund. 7.30 kickoff at Husky Stadium, Washington versus Stanford. Another reminder, I-90 will be closed westbound, which is going to cause a lot of traffic delays. So beware. Leave early and uh, it's going to make a mess out of 520 as well. But I didn't think it was going to take long after the first couple of games of Michael Penix had a big game against Michigan State that you know, his name was going to come up in the Heisman Trophy talks, and that's happened this week. A lot of people are talking about Michael Penix in the Heisman Trophy talks. Surprised at all, Chris? Um, no, probably if I had given it some serious thought. But, you know, ultimately, you know, again, and we, and we were we were uh, <laughs> we were reminded about Jake Brownie being sixth in the 2016 Heisman Trophy balloting, you know, when we talk about you know, we're just not used to up here in Seattle seeing a Washington quarterback get a ton of Heisman consideration. Um, it's just not something that anybody really talks about. Especially, and even in the Northwest, too. I know Marcus Mariota won the Heisman for Oregon, but traditionally it's just such an outlier. It's always been a, you know, whoever the top quarterback is for the number one team in the country, that kind of thing. Um, almost at times a popularity contest between Big Ten, SEC, whatever. Um, it just, again, just been so far out of that that particular part of the college football ecosystem. It just doesn't resonate. And then all of a sudden you hear, you start to hear some of the national guys talking about panics. You hear a, you know, a, a Kirk Herbstreit talk about them, or you talk, you hear some of the some of the guys, national sports writers like a Feldman or a um, you know, or some of those guys all of a sudden extolling the virtues of Michael Penix and it dawns on you. It's like, okay, this guy really did something special. And so, um, you know, on the one, so on the one hand, I was a little surprised to hear about it, but then on the other hand, when you compare what he's done and, and, and kind of the impact that he's made on this program and, and, and more importantly, the turnaround from, from going to where they were nine months ago, to where they are now, and a lot of that can be put at the at the at the feet of Michael Penix because he's been able to help get these guys turned around offensively. It's uh, it probably shouldn't come as much as a, of a surprise, honestly. And Scott, when we were talking about spring ball, fall ball, and I know it's only been three games, but if I told you midway through fall ball and I'd showed you those stats, would you have found it uh, a little bit hard to believe? Yeah, I. I... I just didn't we, we didn't see enough, Kim. That's the problem. I mean, we we they didn't do a lot of scrimmaging during the times that we what did we get? Six open practices, whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. And they didn't do a lot of scrimmaging during that time. And when they did, it was just uh more like scenarios like um just outside the red zone, what are they gonna do? Or or uh they're doing two minute offense and things like that. So uh for us to get a chance to see the what little we did, we didn't really know what to expect from Michael Penix. 
We felt that he was probably going to be the guy because he knew the offense better, but we didn't know how productive he was going to be. And I mean, when you look at what he's been able to do, he's what third in the country in in uh, passing, and and his his QBR is just unbelievable. So I mean, you, you just you talk about a guy who's hitting on all cylinders, and the reason we didn't expect it, Kim, is because we didn't see it, and it isn't because he wasn't doing it in practice. We just didn't see him do it in practice. So, um, you know, I, I mean, I don't know what what else to say other than you know we're sorry we couldn't give you more <laughs> to expect, but but uh, yeah, I mean, I I honestly did not expect him to be as accurate as he's been. I, what, what was he at Indiana? About a 62 percent passer. And he's right up around 70% right now. So, I mean, it's, he's un- unreal. He's, he's had an unreal first three games of the season. And what's what I'm giving him a lot of credit for is when we talked to Coach Grubb, um, he told us, you know, knowing – and even Lee Marks as the running back coach, one of the keys to getting playing time is knowing the offense and being able to line up the offense and being in the right place and being able to make the checks. And, you know, I've talked about this a couple of times, just the amount of pre – a snap shifts that they are making, you know, and Michael Penix seems to have that down um, to a T they're making so many pre-snap shifts. And I, I'm pretty sure he's the one calling a lot of those. So uh, uh, that's just key. And that's something maybe we weren't able to see in fall ball and spring ball. But the other thing that made it a little bit more surprising is, you know, this coaching staff's always been pretty upfront with us and they haven't seemed to hide much, but you know, they took a long time to make him the starter, Chris. Well, they did, and I think that was, you know, looking back on it, clearly hindsight's twenty twenty, but uh, it was a very political process. I mean, I I think the coaches know that Dylan Morris and Sam Heward are here. They want to keep them here. They want to keep them happy. They want to be fair with them and, and give them a legitimate shot, and I think they did every opportunity. They gave them every opportunity, but, you know, when you hear – you know, Brock Heward, for instance, and obviously he has a familiar connection to Sam. But when you hear him say it, and I'm assuming he would say this as a former player who's gone through position battles at that level to say that it was basically a non-battle because they had identified Penix as a guy that they had had so much success with before that when a guy like that comes in, it's not really a battle and he he and he didn't necessarily just mention the situation with Penix at Washington he you know look at Caleb Williams at SC how much of a position battle was that you know how much of a position battle was it you know when a guy like Joe Burrow goes to LSU or you know when um Kyler Murray went from uh Texas A&M to Oklahoma you know that it, it just I think his greater point was is that when you have a very high profile quarterback and Penix was a high-profile quarterback in Indiana because he was part of a big turnaround in that program. When you have a guy like that going to another school, it just makes sense that the coaching staff is making that move for a very specific reason. So, you know, it's again, I I feel bad for Sam and I feel bad for Dylan. But again, these are kind of the, the moves that programs have to make in order to stay relevant in, in order to progress. And, and clearly we're seeing that with the results of what Penix has been able to do, because this has been a monumental turnaround. It's going to be interesting with the game this afternoon or late this evening. But, um, you know, with Michael Penix and the numbers he's put up throwing the ball, uh, Stanford's strength on their defense is their def- defensive secondary, and they've got a poten- couple of potential NFL guys in their defensive secondary, but where their weakness is up front in their defensive line. Washington has kind of struggled a little bit. The running game, I don't think, is anywhere near where they want it to be, but you know, you've got to expect them going into this game to attack that Stanford front and you know, uh, giving the running backs a lot of carries and maybe not throw the ball as much as they have in the past, Scott. You know, So taking a look at this running game that Washington wants to get jump started i think it, it sure seems to me like they're going to try to establish the run and then play action off of that uh yeah i think i think that definitely is going to be a, a huge key for them you know i mean they didn't run for a lot of yards against michigan state uh last week but they ran toward the end when they needed to they were getting yards on the ground when they needed to you know michael Penix threw for three yards basically in the third in the fourth quarter and and now, granted, they didn't move the ball as well as they would like. And, and the coaches have talked about finishing games a little bit better. But, boy, 
you know, I, I I've been pleasantly surprised with their ability to run because um, I because it was so bad the last two years when when they wanted short yardage and and when that was supposed to be their identity for them not to be able to run the ball was just unreal. Um, but Wayne Talapapa only has 187 yards, you know, rushing and and Cameron Davis isn't far behind him at 157. They both have the same amount of carries, uh, 35 each. So, you know, I they have to be able to run the ball better, but I don't think it's um, been as much of a liability as it was uh, the last two last couple seasons. Yeah, and Chris, I'm fully expecting them to try to establish the run first. Is that what you're seeing when you're taking a look at the Stanford defense? Well, I think when I've when I've taken a look at, at some of the breaking down some of the games statistically, the first three games for Washington, you you see a team, you know, for instance, they ran the ball 36 times against Michigan State and they threw the ball 40 times. That's really good balance. Now, like Scott said, it, it can be those stats can be kind of skewed. Because a lot of people saw those big passes and they saw them kind of control the game with a pass first mentality in the first half of that game. And that's that's very true. But you even go back and look at that first touchdown drive, the very first one that kind of set the tone of the game. You know, that was a seven play drive and four of those plays were runs. And I don't think people necessarily think about that. They think so you had Telepapa on first down. You had Telepapa for the third down run. He ran again on first down. And then he and then he did it at first and goal, you know, they're so they're they like to mix in these runs. They, you know, they have made no no uh, bones about it. Ryan Grubb, we say we have to run the ball. We have to be effective running the ball. They don't have to be a run first offense. Obviously, they've already shown that many times over in these first three games. But establishing that run is critical. And again, like your conversation with Jackson Morkim, it is clear that it seems like the further you go back in that defense in terms of depth, the better they get. And that kind of mirrors, like, let's say Washington's defense last year. May not have been fantastic up front, but the farther back you went, that's when you started getting into the pro players, the Trent McDuffie's, Kyler Gordon's, Bookie Radley Hiles, those guys. And so it sounds like Stanford is similarly built. So if they can take advantage of that front seven, and they have gone through a scheme change. That's something else that you guys talked about, going from an odd front to more of a of a four three, more of an even look. Um, it does feel like they've kind of also mirrored uh, Washington in terms of using the nickel. So it's almost more like a four two five than a straight four three, for instance. So there's some similarities there, and I think that can really help Washington scout when they're when they're running things, uh, you know, during the week in practice because. That base that base four two five defense is something that they've seen every day, spring and fall. And Scott, when you take a look back at the Michigan State game, as good as it was, you're still going to have people just still a little bit on edge about the goal line offense and you know unable to get it into the end zone on the ground in uh, two separate possessions. But um, I'm sure that they've spent a lot of time this week working on that. I'm sure they have too. They're also not going to face. I mean, they might face one or two other stout defensive lines like what Michigan State has and um so you know I don't I don't I'm not that concerned about the first and goal you know or the the goal line situations for this team I, I I think they're just too good to be able to um be held out like they were in this last game I I think there was some mistakes made um obviously there you know and and the Wayne Talapapa one it still surprises me that he did not actually get in on that one. Um, I, I still think he did. I thought they should have reviewed it, but that, that never happened. So, um, I, I'm not that worried about it and I don't think people should be that worried about it. Talk to me in three weeks. If they're still having issues at goal line, then maybe we can talk. But right now I wouldn't worry too much about it. Did not see Richard Newton last week, but the conversations with the coaches sounds like he's going to be part of the game plan this week. But, uh, Chris, I'm expecting to see more from, um, Richard Newton and, of the backs that I've seen, he seems like the most dynamic, the most angry runner. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what they get out of Richard Newton this week. Yeah, and and, and this almost maybe goes back to a conversation that they may have had before the season started, or maybe in the off season, in terms of having the individual meetings with some of these guys and find out, okay, what makes you tick, what do you, what are you good at, what works well for you. Um, you know, I mean, to me, it almost feels like, oh, how far back 
did the new staff go with the older tape to figure out kind of what makes these guys tick and what how would they fit in with this new offense? And so we know that Richard Newton, there was the one year where, what was it, 19, 2019 or 2018? I can't even remember so far back, where he had like 11 or 12 touchdowns and they were almost all goal line oriented. He was the touchdown back. He was the guy that they went to in short yardage. Now, can he be that guy again? Maybe that's the the question. You know, can well, can they turn him into that guy? Because again, and I don't I don't want to belabor it, but Wayne Telepapa at Virginia, that was his MO. His MO was I am a short yardage guy, I am a goal line guy. But so, and so was, when he gets so stood was Richard up Newton by in the corner so was Richard Newton in the Wildcat that's a problem. You know, you, Ryan Grubb even mentioned it. He didn't mention Talapapa by name, but he said, when we have a running back at the goal line getting stood up by a cornerback, we're expecting that guy to score. And so they're just little things like pad level, angles when you're blocking, just all the stuff that they have to clean up. And like Scott said, until it becomes a pattern, uh, as a Washington fan, I, I hope Washington fans don't get too hung up on that stuff because it'll get cleaned up. But like I said, you know, Richard Newton was the guy in the Wildcat, you know, and he was he was pretty successful running that. So I don't know. I, I, who do you feel more comfortable with Scott? I know you hate that wildcat, but I mean, if you're going to run the wildcat down on the goal line, who do you like back there? Wayne Talapapa or Richard Newton? I like uh, Wayne Talapapa taking the snap and possibly handing it off to Richard Newton or giving it to Giles Jackson or one of the receivers on a, on a, um, you know, on an end around, I, I think, and I think Cameron Davis is actually pretty damn good inside the uh, five two. So um, I think Washington's got a lot of options there. I, I don't have a preference either way. I I've liked what I've seen from Talapapa on the, on the wildcat. And so. then also uh, you know, I, I'm expecting the tight ends to be a little bit more involved this week because, of, you know, Stanford strength is their defensive back. So if you can run those little uh, underneath patterns with the tight ends and maybe suck those uh, corners up with the running game and those underneath patterns to the tight ends, that's going to open it up over the top for Jalen McMillan and Rumble. on Washington's last uh, touchdown drive against Michigan state. Um, they had that fourth, what was it? Fourth and five at the, at like the what 40 yard line of Michigan state, whatever it was. And they found, um, uh, Culp, Devin Culp for, for a nice little, what it ended up being like a 15, 20 yard gain, but, um, he didn't run more than a five yarder out and they, they hit it and he was wide open and just was able to let his athleticism take over. So, um, yeah, I, I think you're going to see the tight ends a little bit more. Jack Westover seen, seen some throws, uh, come his way and they've been scheming some things. Um, I think it was the first touchdown for Washington, uh, or maybe, no, I, it was later. I, I think it was the touchdown that eventually ended up with, uh, Cameron Davis going over, but, uh, Jack Westover comes the complete opposite way across the formation after the ball was snapped. He went out into the pattern came completely opposite and everybody went with the wide receivers because of the receivers having so much success. And Jack Westover didn't have anybody within 10 yards of him. And uh, I think he almost didn't know what the hell to do because <laughs> there was so many, it was so wide open and he ended up with, I don't know, getting down to like the five yard line. So uh, yeah, I think you're going to see Washington do a little bit more. I, I, I want to see Quentin Moore get more involved in the offense. He is such a weapon. He's so big and so talented I, he's just got to figure it out on the blocking end, and if he can do that, man, that that the sky is the limit for him. I think he's a pro tight end if if he ever kind of the light switch ever really comes on for him. Does he have a reception yet this year? I think he has one yes. for like five yards. Yeah, so I'm actually I can look it up right now. He's right here. Uh, one reception for where is he? One reception or two receptions for 13 yards. So yeah, I mean if you line up the tight ends and. Uh, you put them all in the same group and go down on the field. Uh, Quentin Moore is the one that looks like the dude. Yeah, but but again, when you have Jalen Million with 16 catches, Jalen Polk with 12, Roma Dunze 10, but in only two games, Charles Jackson with nine and three. Because I asked Nick Sheridan uh, about this, you guys. When those when that receiver group is fully humming along, and Penix is literally just picking guys apart on the edges. That that's just ripe for the for the tight ends to make a really really big impact in higher leverage moments. That that pass to Westover that you mentioned, Scott, I'd have to remember the down and distance, but I 
I want to say that that was a fairly, I don't know, maybe it was a third down, but the one to Colt, the little delay route, that was on a fourth and five or something. That was on yeah, that fourth and five. Drive. Yeah. Yeah. That was on that last drive of the first half that really kind of broke the back of uh, Michigan State. And that was a really high leverage situation. And guess what, guys? Where, where do you think Michigan State's attention was on the receivers? And and they did. I mean, Culp, well, there was no one within five yards of Culp when he caught that pass. I mean, well, I it, was, think... it was a it was a well-designed play and it really took advantage of the things that you would expect a defense to try to take away because they hadn't been able to take them away at all up to that point in the game. And I don't think it's uh, you know a uh, reach at all to say that this may be the best defensive secondary they faced this year. Um, you know Michigan State's secondary not good, Portland State not good, Kent State not good. So I think Stanford this is going to be a test for that, and that's why I expect the tight ends and the running backs to be more involved, especially the short throws to the uh, the running backs. I'm a, I'm expecting them more to set up the pass with the run and the short passes and then the deep balls where in the first few games it sure seemed like they were thrown further down the field to try to open up that short game. It's possible. I mean, they, they're still giving up over eight and a half yards per attempt, Kim. So I, I now, now the numbers and the statistics obviously are very skewed because they've only played two games. The biggest thing they have going for them at this point when, with regards to Stanford is that they have the bye week. They, they have all sorts of time now to pour through all three games that they've seen of Washington. They get to watch Michael Penix and see what he does. They have to find a plan of attack to get after him. Because when they when Michigan State or when some of these other teams have been able to put at least a little bit of pressure on him, that's when passes hit the turf. They go incomplete. Um, you know, they, they that it starts up front first. Because yes, they have guys that can that can maybe pick off some passes or make things tough in the back end. But if Michael Penix has a clean pocket to throw to, I don't care who you are, he's going to be able to complete passes. Period. So it really starts up front, in my opinion. They need to get after Penix. If that means bringing extra guys and what have you, they're going to have to do that. But if you look at their statistics. The main guys that are that are causing havoc in terms of tackles for loss or sacks or things like that are guys that they bring up, safety blitzes, corner blitzes. You know, their ends have done a couple things. David Bailey is a true freshman that's done some things, and they've got a couple of other guys. But really, they've had to make a lot of their, their uh, stuff happen on the edges. Yeah. They really have not gotten much push up front. And again, this is where we go back and talk about Al Washington, if they can establish the run can really do some huge damage with play action and the like. One more quick break. Uh, we'll come back. We'll talk about a couple of basketball guys in for uh, visits this weekend, and we'll talk a little bit about football recruiting as well. It's the guys from dogman.com on Dogman Radio. We're back. It's the guys from dogman.com. I'm Kim Grinnells along with Chris Fetter, Scott Eklund. 7.30 kickoff tonight against Stanford. And again, I keep on telling you, traffic's going to be a mess with a portion of I-90 closed all weekend long. So expect the severe backups on 520 and just trying to get over to that side of the lake is going to be difficult. So uh, leave a little bit early. But uh, Scott, let's touch bases on football recruiting real quick. There was a lot of visitors in last week from the Michigan State game. Um, we still are working on visitors and uh, who might be showing up for the Stanford game, but maybe give people a little bit of an overview on uh, what the post-Michigan State reaction has been from some of the recruits that you've talked to. Oh, well, I, I you know, talked about it earlier in the week. You know, they the players I've spoken to, and it's about 25 to 30 guys now, um, they've all just said, wow, that that blew them away. I think they expected Michigan State and Washington to be a battle. And I think they were just absolutely shocked at how Washington was able to come out. What were they up? 22 nothing at one point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it it just shocked a lot of people um, that that have watched. And, and I don't think it shocked them in a bad way. I just I think they didn't know what to expect because they haven't seen this staff at this level yet. And so you know, doing it at Washington. And, and so they've been really pleasantly surprised. I think Washington, it's that, that win has put Washington in the mix for some guys that they weren't going to have a shot at. And I'm talking more 2024, 2025 guys than, 
than 2023s. There are some 2023s that are that are still looking at Washington pretty strongly, and some guys who are committed to other schools, and we'll have those in in our in upcoming blogs, you know, about who's talking to Washington more and possible flips and everything like that. Although a lot of them are guys that I've talked about before, but you know, I, I think a lot of it is just Washington has put themselves in a great position now. Now they got to follow it up. They got to win this weekend and possibly win down at UCLA next Friday. And, um, you know, if, if they can, if Washington can get off to a five and zero start, probably possibly be a top 10 team by that point. Um, man, Washington's going to be really in a good way on the recruiting front. They just don't have that many spots left, Scott. No, four to five, maybe. Um, you know, probably less than that. But Kim, there's going to be some guys who decommit from this class. And I don't think it's because Washington de- necessarily doesn't want them. I think it's because um, maybe some better guys come in and they're going to see they these guys see the possibility of playing time going somewhere else. Or some of these guys are, are guys that Washington took because they liked them. But maybe there's some guys that are better out there that Washington maybe likes a little bit more. And so they're more than happy to let some guys go. I think you're going to see some movement with this class. I don't think this is going to be a, uh, you know, Chris, I don't know. You know, we went from Sark, who was losing guys and picking guys up and flipping guys and all that different stuff to Peterson, where there were never decommitments and, you know, hardly ever. And um, I think this one's going to be right in the middle of that. Um, I think this staff is really good about making sure the guys want to be committed to them, but they're also big about, Hey, if, if there's better guys out there that we can get, yeah. we're going to go get them. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think NIL has really changed the landscape and, and obviously both positively and negatively positively because, you know, the, the players are the ones that create the product. So they should, uh, they deserve a share of it. Rightly so, in my opinion. But I think that also creates a lot of mouths to feed and a lot of people that get in the heads of these kids when they're in a position where they have to make huge decisions and they just have never done that before. And most of these families only go through this once because they don't have multiple kids that end up going high D1 and, and deal with this kind of high level pressure situation. So. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's it's going to be tough. The portal has just become more of a factor of life, and uh, and and it, and it's already trickling down to the high school level where guys are signing NIL deals for really lucrative sums sums of money. I mean, I'm thinking of the quarterback down in Southern California that signed a he already committed to Tennessee, but the implication is is that there was an NIL deal uh, in place worth millions. So, you know, that those types of things are going to start to become the norm at the very, very highest levels. And I don't know if Washington's necessarily going to be exposed to that kind of stuff, because traditionally they haven't necessarily been able to attract the top, top five star guy unless they've been local or have another tie. But, uh, yeah, the more success you have, the more you're going to kind of pique the interest of some of these really, really top guys. And again, and I know. Kim's talked about it. You've talked about it, Scott. It's it's about fit. And it doesn't matter if you're a two-star guy or a five-star guy. If you're the right guy at the moment and the, and and that you fit a very specific role for what this program needs, it can be a phenomenal deal. And the NIL stuff will come along with it. And, Scott, I think that I don't think the NIL is going to be as important in this recruiting class as the transfer portal because I could easily see them holding some offers back and going after a high-level uh, running back, a high-level uh, defensive backs, and talking about guys that are a little bit more mature along the way who maybe only have one or two years left that can come in and be instant impact guys that are looking for that playing time, or you know the dynamic wide receiver, you know with um, Gary is it Gary Bryant down at USC? Yeah, yeah, uh, bringing in guys like that who could come in as a wide receiver making an immediate impact because you know I, I mean Scott, let me ask you, I mean right now, would you rather bring in a guy like Gary Bryant or a high school recruit? Uh, it depends on the high school recruit, really. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, when you have a guy who's done it at the at at the Pac-12 level, I don't think you can, uh, you know, you you don't take that lightly. But if you can get a big time uh high school recruit that's the it really depends on who you're able to get and and how i i'm sure gary bryant's a great kid but it's you know it comes down to, down to fit does yeah. the four-star high school kid 
with size and speed and a lot of the same traits as Gary Bryant fit better in our program than Gary Bryant does. Now, I, I, I have a hard time thinking that'll be the case, but I don't think you can just blanket say you'd rather have another uh, transfer guy. I just yeah. don't think you can say that. Yeah, and I, I just to add to that real quick, Kim, I, I don't ever want to discount the importance of the portal. The portal can be an amazing short-term fix. I mean, we've seen it with Penix. We've seen it with Jalen Polk already from Texas Tech. That said, you're talking about maybe two or three guys that get transferred in in a class of 25. So the, the, the lifeblood of the program will still always come from the high school ranks. Sure. It's just that's the way it's going to be, and well, that's no, the just, way it's always been. Those transfer portal guys are going to be guys to fill in depth or fill in the uh, fill in the missing pieces. So Right. Uh, and uh, just moving over to basketball real quick, a couple of visitors in this week. Uh, first of all, Jacob Coffey, who's a 6'9 uh, forward out of Eastside Catholic. He's class of 2024. Um, he's got offers from Colorado, Montana, UNLV, um, Washington State. But he's a guy who's kind of blown up over the summer. So keep an eye on uh, Jacob Coffey out of Eastside Catholic. And another local kid will be visiting as well. 2023 kid, his name is Christian King. For those old-timers, who've been around a long time and followed the Seattle Supersonics. If you remember a first-round draft pick that Seattle had way back in the day out of Nebraska, Rich King. Uh, this is his son. He's at Seattle Prep. He's about 6'7", 6'8", but most of the people I'm talking to say he is not done growing yet, and a lot of people expect him to wind up in that uh, 6'10 range. So um, more of a stretch four. I'm not sure he's a five, depending on how big he gets, but uh, keep an eye on Christian King, really good kid out of Seattle Prep, and his stock seems to be going through the roof as well. Um, and then just real quick, so uh, we've got um, Stanford this week, head to UCLA the follow next week, and then the following week is UCLA, excuse me, Arizona State, um, back home against Arizona, and then back down to Cal. And right after the Cal game on Saturday, uh, Basketball Media Day down in San Francisco on the 25th, I believe it is, 25th, 26th, right in there on a Wednesday. So basketball sneaking up on us. So we're getting into that time where football, basketball and recruiting all meshed together. So it's uh, crazy times ahead for us at dogman.com. So Chris Fetters, wrap it up. Yeah, I just think that it's going to be a, a, an interesting game tonight. I know on paper what Washington's a 13 and a half, 14 point. Uh, favorite and that's interesting I mean in and of itself because the 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 series is tied 44-44-4 so it can't get any tighter between Stanford and Washington Um, I just think the the battle between Tanner McKee and this slow mesh versus Washington's kind of improving defense I wouldn't say clearly I don't think that they're there by any stretch but they they have shown a lot of improvement in their rush defense and Stanford not having E.J. Smith puts them at a decided disadvantage. Um, I'm not saying that this is going to end up being like 2016 all over again, but would it shock me to see Washington come out and explode again on offense like they've done the first three weeks? I certainly haven't seen anything in Stanford's defense that tells me Washington can't move the ball on them and move the ball on them a lot unless they implode or 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 self-destruct or or create some issues that just weren't there the first three weeks that we haven't seen so you know we put out our predictions everyone can see them i'm i'm predicting a fairly comfortable washington win but only because i think they get up early and can kind of cruise a little bit from here on out and i think it's going to be good too because they're going to be on a short week the following week when they go play ucla on friday got eklund wrap it up um, I, you know, I, I really think, uh, Chris hit a lot of the stuff on the head. I, I, you know, I've heard a lot of pundits talk about this game, uh, take the over and I fully agree. I think Stanford will be able to score on Washington, but I think Washington, you know, if they punt more than three or four times, I, I'll be surprised. I, I think Washington is going to have every opportunity to score a lot of points on this team. And, and I think they have the horses to do it. The, the wide receivers are really playing well. I think the the running backs can play better, and I think the offensive line is playing pretty well as well. So I think there's still some meat on the bone for this team to to really get out there and, and get some things done. Um, I like what I've seen. 
Um, and I think uh, they can be pretty special uh, going forward. They need to build on what they did, where they put themselves on the national scene uh, last week with that win of, over Michigan State. It all gets taken away if they lose to Stanford. They got to beat Stanford. You know, going on the road to UCLA, understandable if you lose that game. You cannot lose at home to a weak Stanford squad. Probably one of the weakest teams we've seen uh, from Stanford over the last, oh, I don't know, 20 years. One, you know, I would say of the 20 teams over those last two decades, I'd say this one's probably 16th or 17th best out of that group. Washington needs to beat this team. Quick, Chris, I'm going to ask you a question and we'll, we'll uh, get the answers back to uh, when we do our next podcast. Uh, what time is Scott Eklund going to leave the stadium on uh, tonight? What time will he get out of there? Oh, am I supposed to a- answer that? Yeah. What was, what's your over under? What time is he going to get out of there? Uh, he's going to probably get out of there earlier than I will. Typically right. gets usually gets out there about 15, 20 minutes before I do. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing we always legislate for seven hours from kickoff. So if it's a seven 30 kick, what is that? Two 30. So I'm thinking if he sprints, he can get out of there by maybe one 30. God, you just made him cringe. What time am I going to get out of there? Uh, oh, 11. Probably. You usually leave us really early. Yeah. You, you do the podcast and then you're done. You're gone. You're ghost. What time do you get out of there, Chris? Uh, I'll probably get out of there between 2 and 2.30. Yeah. yeah, I got me and Scott both getting out of there at 1. I'd like to get out of there at 1. If we can get out of there at 1, I'll, I'll be really happy, although not as happy as I would be if it was a, a start at a normal start time. All right. And just real quick, Washington's in for a long seven days in front of them with, uh, you know, the late game at Stanford. Those kids are going to get home pretty late and it's not like they can just go home and go right to bed and fall asleep. They're going to be up for a while. Short week with UCLA on Friday night. So not a lot of time to recover. And then they've got to head down to the desert. Probably. uh, I don't know if they're going to leave that Thursday or Friday, but they've got to go down to Arizona. So uh, a couple of long weeks in front for the uh, Washington football team. So, um, you know, just keep right here at dogman.com nobody's going to be covering it better than us uh no promo running this week but if you just want to subscribe to dogman.com with the yearly subscription don't forget uh something you get as a, a full paying member of dogman.com at 100 bucks a year paramount plus is included with it and there's a lot of good stuff on paramount plus right now so that is included after your seven day trial period for those who are signing up for the promos that we run that is not included until you pay the full freight so uh even though we're not technically running a promo Paramount Plus is included after your seven-day trial period. And if you're looking for those updates, regular updates, as well as breaking news alerts, just shoot us a note, huskystadium at gmail.com, subject line newsletter, and we will get you hooked up. So for all of us at dogman.com, I'm Kim Grenolds along with Chris Fetters and Scott Eklund. Go dogs. 